And if you would turn with me or listen on as I read uh, once again, Romans chapter eight, verses 14 through 17, with a special emphasis on verse 16. Hear God's word. For as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Amen. And uh, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word as ever. And we ask you that as we are considering the ministry of the Holy Spirit in believers as sons, as children, and even as we'll see soon as heirs, that Holy Spirit, you would take a special interest in these sermons and in us as we listen to and improve upon the sermons by faith. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that we might not be strangers to the things which Paul speaks of here, but that we might know them well as a matter of our own experience. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are considering here, and we have been considering uh, this experience of grace I've been calling it. Uh, If we look at verses 14 through 17 as their own unit, which I think we should, Paul is speaking of those who are led by the Spirit. These are the sons of God. That's a statement of truth. Uh, verses 16 or 15 and 16, rather, within that broader section, I would bracket off. At least I have in my own mind and in my own Bible. For in verse 17, he states another truth. But in verses 15 and 16, Paul is is describing an experience, an experience uh, about which he knew, an experience which I hope to show you in some measure is well known uh, in the church, in the history of the church, and an experience which. Uh, May I also say I have known an experience of grace which comes to us by the spirit of of adoption. And it comes to us like this, Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out of a father. You see, it's not describing a truth so much as he's describing an experience. Uh, Beyond that, he says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, two sermons ago, in the first of these three sermons, I had indicated that in considering the cry, Abba, Father, which we are moved at times to cry out by the Holy Spirit, I had suggested that this was perhaps, it would seem, the highest form of assurance, uh, the, very, the very highest we could ever uh, go in the Christian life. What could be higher, what could be better than uh, Again, as I say, and as Paul says, to be moved by the spirit, to be assured of your sonship such that you cry out by the energy and the unction of the spirit of a father in prayer. And many of you have known it. I have known it. And yet. Well, and to do so, let me add full of feeling and love toward God as our father. To lay hold of him as our father, as sons, what could be higher than that? And yet, as I indicated at the end of that sermon, and so I would reiterate here, there is something even higher than that, even better. What we are about to consider together in verse 16 is the very pinnacle of Christian experience in relation to the blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. This is indeed the very mountaintop. This is the pinnacle. 
This is the peak. This is the highest to heaven you can get in this life. Namely, the witness of the Holy Spirit that we are children of God. There is nothing beyond that. Not in this life. Here is something that many of us have known and felt. In addition to the cry, Abba, Father, in prayer, moved by the Spirit, so we have been made known to... We have been made to know, rather, by the Spirit, that we are the children of God. And I pray that there is not a single Christian here who has not known it. Who does not know of what I speak. None who can say, once I have finished, what you say is strange to me and unfamiliar. Though I would dare suggest that there may be some who, as Christians, who have not known it. Who do not know the witness of the Spirit. That they are the sons of God or children of God who are strangers to this experience and who I hope may be helped by what I say. Let me divide the matter like this. As a first heading, the relation of verse 16 to verse 15 and even verse 14. You notice how one thing leads to the next and one thought follows the last. Well, In verse 14, Paul says, these are the sons of God. And this is how we may know who the sons of God are, namely those who are led by the spirit. And that was the whole thrust of that sermon. And that's how we ought to understand that verse. If we are being led by the spirit in particular to mortify the deeds of the flesh, then we may be assured that we are the sons of God. Beyond that, in verse 15, he describes an experience of sonship, which we uh, receive as a result of the spirit of adoption coming to us. Something... That, therefore, that is beyond what he says in verse 14, ultimately, which leads to the cry in which we are enabled to express our sonship to God in prayer, crying out, Abba, Father. This is the ministry of, of the spirit to believers, to enable them to act and feel as sons and thus leading them to assurance. As those who are sure of their sonship, they are moved by the spirit to express their sonship to God in prayer and believing prayer. But still. As I say, we're ascending the mountain, but we haven't reached the peak. For the believer might be led to express confidently to God that he is a son in prayer, even to cry out, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. And yet, in the midst of that, feel that something is missing. Even now, I wonder, he says to himself, whether I am right in this. You see, in a sense, and this will become clear in verse 16. In verse 15, he's witnessing to himself. He's saying, I'm a believer. I'm a son. In so far as I can tell, I am made to feel that I am a son. But even so, can I be sure that I am right? Can I be sure that my witness about myself is correct? But just here, and this is why I'm so thankful that Paul thought to add, and God so often adds in the experience of the believer, this mention of the witness of the Spirit in verse 16. Even as the believer is witnessing to himself, God comes in in his own timing By the spirit of adoption and he adds his testimony to ours. Such that the believer is expressing his confidence that he is a son and the spirit then witnesses to the truth of what he witnesses. He adds his witness to ours, thus giving us an infallible assurance. Here's the peak. Here's the mountaintop. You can't get beyond it in this line. The very assurance which comes from heaven. Listen to how John Owen puts it. This is dangerous. When I begin to read Owen and Edwards, the sermons tend to get long. But this 
well, I can't help myself here. This is, uh, Lloyd-Jones references this. I, one of you referenced this to me. This is one of the best pages in all of Owen. And he's describing what I'm describing, and that is the believer who, well, he's witnessing and yet he's wondering. He's witnessing to God as to his sonship, and yet he wonders whether his witness is right. This is what Owen says. Now, sometimes the soul, because it hath somewhat remaining in it of the principle that it had in its own in its old condition is put to question whether it be a child of God or no. And therefore, as in a thing of the greatest importance, puts in its claim with all the evidences that it hath to make its good title. The spirit comes and bears witness in this case. An allusion it is to judicial proceedings in point of titles and evidences. The soul, by the power of its own conscience, is brought before the law of God. There a man puts in his plea that he is a child of God, that he belongs to God's family. And for this end produces all his evidences, everything whereby faith gives him an interest in God. Satan, in the meantime, opposes with all his might, sin and law assist him. Many flaws are found in his evidences. The truth of them all is questioned and the soul hangs in suspense as to the issue. In the midst of the plea and contest, the comforter comes and by a word of promise or otherwise overpowers the heart with a comfortable persuasion and bears down all objections that his plea is good and that he is a child of God. When our spirits are pleading their right and title, he comes in and bears witness on our side. He comes in, Owen says, and says, what you're saying is right. What you're saying is true. Even as Satan would testify to the contrary. Well, uh, believe it or not, we'll go on with that quote in a little while. But for now, uh, I, I take my point as established uh, with the evidence or with the backing of Owen. Here is something in addition to our own pleas, our own evidence, our own witness. Here is the spirit, as he says, let me read again. In the midst of the plea and contest, the comforter comes and by a word of promise or otherwise overpowers the heart with a comfortable persuasion, bears down all objections that his plea is good and that he is a child of God. Thus, he is seen as our inter intercessor, our comforter and so on. Well, having said that, as a second point, I want to consider very briefly certain false views, for there are many false views with respect to this and, and even in surprising quarters. Uh, one of which is that the witness of the spirit is more or less the constant work of the spirit. This is a common view, uh, especially in, refor in reform circles. That it is the ordinary work of the spirit unto all believers at all times as a result of their conversion. That this is what the spirit is always doing from the moment of our conversion. Well, my objection is that to present it like this does not agree with the nature of the experience that Paul is describing here, as we'll see. Nor does it agree with our own experience as Christians if we have known it. A second false view is that what Paul is describing here is uh, a second work, viewing it as what the Pentecostals call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or even, I, I regret to say, Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to this as baptism of the Holy Spirit, separating the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, from our conversions. Now, I would say that our conversions are when we're baptized with the Spirit, and yet the witness often comes later. But I wouldn't call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's also, I was very surprised to find Jonathan Edwards presenting a strange view 
he says, this is in Religious Affections, and I, I hardly find anything in this book to differ with except surprisingly strongly with this one statement. He says, many have been the mischiefs that have arisen from the false and delusive notion of the witness of the spirit, that it is a kind of inward voice, suggestion or declaration from God to man that he is beloved of him. That God is suggesting immediately to the soul that he is a child of God. He's saying this is uh, a delusive notion. And yet that is precisely what I'm going to suggest it is. Not uh, a delusive notion, obviously, but that it is God directly testifying to us. Well, that brings me to the third point, namely the nature of the witness. Positively, what is it? Well, the first thing we should say is that it's the testimony of the Spirit himself. It's not our own testimony. It's not what we deduce based upon reading Scripture or even what we believe. It is what God himself by the Spirit, God the Spirit, is testifying to us. Remember, he is a person. He is dwelling in you. He's sovereign. He is personally relating to us. And in relating to us, he's testifying. He's speaking, if you like, in his own way. He's adding his testimony to ours. And what's he saying? What's he telling us? He's telling us this, that we are the children of God. In other words, as we were considering just a moment ago, we may have doubted it. Even as we believed it and expressed it confidently. So we begin uh, to doubt. How does, how does uh, Owen put it? It's, he's put to the question whether it be a child of God or no. He begins to wonder. He begins to doubt. It's just then we read that the Spirit speaks to us. He witnesses to us. And he gives us a certainty that only he can give. This is the witness of the Spirit, personally relating to us even as he inhabits us. If you're in Christ, the Spirit is in you. He's dealing with you. Now he says he's speaking to you. And so this is, as Robert Haldane says, a direct and an immediate testimony. Now, that is precisely what Edwards was saying it wasn't. But that is precisely what I'm saying it is. And that's precisely what Haldane says that it was. And nearly everyone, by the way, says as well. A direct and an immediate testimony of the Holy Spirit to our spirits, adding to our witness and our testimony that we are the sons of God. Now, am I saying that the, 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 that the voice is audible, that we are hearing voices in our mind, that God is speaking to us in such a way that it, it may be heard? I am not saying that, nor is anyone that I'm aware of in describing this experience suggesting that. But I am saying that the impression that the Spirit gives to the soul is one that is unmistakable. It is one about which we cannot be mistaken. It is as sure to us as if God himself were speaking to us from heaven, for that indeed is what he is doing in his own way by the Spirit who resides in us. In particular, what the Spirit is doing is to produce a feeling a sensation in the soul. He is impressing us with this fact that we are loved of God. He is making us feel that we are loved of God. He is giving us a sense of the love of God. So that we know and feel that we are beloved. Even his own children. A distinct and unmistakable impression immediately given to the soul. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts, Paul says, Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Of necessity, I would say, this is a heart-melting experience. Few have known it, uh, but 
who have had tears streaming down their faces. An overwhelming sense of God's love to us immediately impressed upon the soul. A love which, which the Father has had upon the elect from all eternity. I'll read it soon, but I'll tell you now. Thomas Brooks says, it's the electing love of God brought home to the soul. A witness which is born from heaven, not from earth. Now this truth, the love of God from all eternity, which we read about in all scripture, is brought home to the soul with with peculiar force by the Spirit. It isn't something we produced in our hearts. It's something that was brought home to the heart by the Holy Spirit, by the spirit of adoption. If in verse 15, we were telling God that we loved him, moved by the Holy Spirit with familiar feelings of sonship, that God is our father. If on our side, I'm saying we were saying, God, I love you. In verse 16, by the witness of the spirit, God is saying, and I love you. You are my child. You are my beloved. He's assuring us of it. He's giving us a sense of it. He's causing us to feel it. He's letting us feel, if you will, the warmth of his love. The intensity of feeling, if I may say so, that God feels for us. The great love with which he loved the elect and the church. Producing in us reciprocal feelings of love to God in a way we never knew before. Joy inexpressible and full of glory, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. A confidence and a certainty as to our status as the children of God, which we never knew before, nor which we could have achieved on our own merely by believing. You see, what I'm saying is that only God can give this kind of assurance. God, the Holy Spirit, and he does so by the spirit of adoption whom, he, whom he's given to us, verse 15. What else can we say about this heart-melting experience? This direct, immediate impression upon the soul. Well, first, that only a Christian can ever experience this. You see, you can't get to verse 16 except by verse 14. And even verse 9 and 10. Those who are in the Spirit. Those in whom the Spirit dwells. One who is led by the Spirit. And thus who is a son of God. Who is he testifying to? Well, to the sons of God. So first, you must be a son of God. Before the spirit can add his witness. Beyond that. You also have to be conscious of your sonship. Here's the ministry of the spirit to those who are conscious of their sonship. Who are expressing it already in the way that he's described in verse 15. They are if you like witnessing to their own sonship. In their spirits to God. Oh God I am a son and you are my father. Abba father. And it is to this. That the spirit adds his own witness. And so it is a concurrent witness as Haldane says. A witness of the spirit that goes along with our own witness about ourselves. We express our sonship in believing prayer by the spirit. And the spirit comes along and adds his own witness to ours. It's a concurrent witness. He joins in adding further assurance and certainty. He takes us all the way to the peak. It's also a confirming witness. The believer's witness about himself is made sure. It is confirmed by the Spirit. It is sealed unto him. Haldane says, the Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer joins his testimony with his Spirit in confirmation of this truth that he is a son of God. 
And so you see how Dan goes on and I in agreement. He says it's never his first work. No, it's something in addition. It's a witness to something else that's already present. The spirit can't confirm something that isn't there or even which a man isn't sure about himself. But where such things are already present, the man is a son. He knows he's a son. The spirit is able to come in and add his joint witness, testifying the truth of what is known and felt in the soul, even that we are the sons of God. Lastly, as to its nature, it is a secret transaction, a secret dealing between the soul of the believer and God. In other words, it is solely for the benefit of the man himself. And it is something that only he can know for himself. The witness of the spirit. God is dealing. God, the spirit is dealing with this person individually as a child. He's telling him, you're my child. You are beloved from all eternity. I love you. He's bringing the eternal love of God home to the soul immediately, directly. He's giving this child an overwhelming sense of his love as his father in heaven. He's pouring his love into his heart. Here is, uh, as so many said, I, I hardly could read anyone in their description of this, but who said this. And so I say it with them. Here is the hidden manna and the white stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Not only God's immediate dealings with the soul, but God's secret dealings. What I'm describing, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, is something, well, if you've experienced it, only you can know it. But it is something I hope that you are able to say with me, I have experienced, I have known it. I know what it is to be assured of my sonship, even from heaven itself. By the blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here is the hidden manna. Which no one knows except him who receives it. Well that's the nature of it. That's my description of the nature of it. Even though it, regre- it, regrets, it, it is regrettable to me. It pains me. It grieves me to be at odds with, with Edwards. Let me, let me offer some of the testimony of history. If we can set Edwards aside. Let me add the testimony of others. We've already read Owen. Let me complete the quote. He's talking about the believer, as it were, brought into the courtroom. The believer is presenting his evidences. He's witnessing to himself, although he's brought to doubt by the counter accusations and the counter witness of Satan. And it's just then that the the spirit comes in. He settles. He settles the plea. That the plea is good and that he's a child of God. And yet he goes on. He says, remember still the manner of the spirits working before mentioned that he does it effectually, voluntarily and freely. Hence, sometimes the dispute hangs long. The cause is pleading many years. The law seems sometimes to prevail sin and Satan to rejoice. And the poor soul is filled with dread about its inheritance. Perhaps its own witness from its faith, sanctification, former experience keeps up the plea with some life and comfort. But the work is not done. The conquest is not fully obtained until the spirit who works freely and effectually when and how he will comes in with his testimony. Also clothing his power with a word of promise. He makes all parties concerned to attend unto him and puts an end to the controversy. Herein, he gives us holy communion with himself. This is communion with God, by the way, the book communion with God. Herein, the Holy Spirit gives us communion with himself. The soul knows his voice when he speaks. 
And when the Holy Ghost, by one word, stills the tumults and storms that are raised in the soul, giving it an immediate calm and security, it knows his divine power and rejoices in his presence. That's the testimony of Owen. What about the testimony of Spurgeon? Remember, I read this last time. I'll read it again. He talks about verses 15 and 16 uh, as one joint experience, as they so often are. The cry of the believer and then the, the voice of God to the soul. This is what he says. May the Holy Spirit grant that we may not say a word which is not strictly verified by our experience. I do not want to say a word which has not been verified in my experience. But I hope that we can say that we have had converse with the divine father. We have not seen him any time, but yet we have spoken to him. We have said to him, Abba, Father, we have saluted him in that title which came from our very heart, our Father who art in heaven. We have had access to him in such a way that we cannot have been deceived. I can I almost sneeze there. I can testify to this, he says. I've spoken to him in that particular manner. We have had access to him in such a way that we cannot have been deceived about. The thing really happened in this tremendous fashion. That's verse 15. He goes on. Nor has the speaking been all on our side, for he has been pleased to shed abroad by his spirit, his love in our hearts. While, while we have felt the spirit of adoption, he, on the other hand, has shown to us the loving kindness of a tender father. We have felt, though no sound was heard, we have known that his spirit did bear witness with our spirit that we were born of God. We were embraced of him no more at a distance. And finally, let me read the quote from Thomas Goodwin. Though if you were to study the history of the church on this matter, especially since the time of the Reformation, the Puritans, their heirs, you will find so often they are saying things like this. He says, there is a light that comes and overpowers a man's soul and assures him that God is his and he is God's and that God loves him from everlasting it is a light beyond the light of ordinary faith. The next thing to heaven, you have no more and you can have no more till you come thither. It is faith elevated and raised up above its ordinary rate. It is the electing love of God brought home to the soul. What you notice in these brief references, we have Owen, we have, uh, we have Spurgeon, we have um, Goodwin, uh, Lloyd-Jones in all of his sermons, though regrettably he calls it baptism in the spirit. I wouldn't call it that, but, but he describes it in just this way. They're all describing it as something tremendous, something extraordinary, something outside the ordinary experience of the believer, something exceptional. In other words, what they're saying and what I'm saying is this. You don't live on the mountaintop, but sometimes, thank God, by the spirit you are brought there. You are brought to the mount of God's love such that you are made to feel the electing love of God from all eternity brought home to the soul. What about as a fifth point, the recipients of the witness? Who are the ones who are apt to receive it? Well, it might come in one of two ways. It might come to us as individuals. Indeed, it often does. Times and seasons where we are given this sense. Where God's love is being poured into our hearts. Have you ever felt it? Have you ever been there reading your Bible or listening to a sermon and suddenly the witness enters in and you have such a sense of God's love to you that you cannot contain it? The tears flow down your face. Your heart is melted. 
And what is it that melts your heart more than anything but the sense of God's love to you from all eternity? But it can also come to groups of believers, to churches and even communities, especially in times of revival. And at such, at such times, the witness of the Spirit is commonly felt as a common experience. This is what you find, again, if you study the history of revivals. And certainly we could say this was uh, the testimony. It was the common experience of the early church, such that the witness of the Spirit was commonly known, commonly felt, and commonly spoken of. What are its consequences and effects as a sixth point? Well, first, great rejoicing, and inexpressibly so. How does Peter put it? He says, joy inexpressible and full of glory. How does the believer come to this kind of joy? Well, by the witness of the Holy Spirit, by being filled with a sense of God's love, and thus inexpressible joy and full of glory. Also beyond that, a fixed certainty in believing. A new assurance is given to the believer such that he's never known before. In addition to this, we often find powerful Christian witness. Men, as a result of the witness of the Spirit, are enabled to witness to Christ in a powerful and ineffectual way. Men are unable to refute them. This is what we read and see in Acts. The powerful testimony of the apostles who were so full of the Spirit. We see it not only in them, but we see it in uh, in the history of the church, I said it in the first in the series of sermons that uh, you read about the great preachers. And invariably, these were men who knew the witness of the spirit. And they were men who knew what it was to cry out to God as sons by the spirit. And as a result of this tremendous moving experience, there was a release. There was a sense of power such that they were able to preach in a way they had never been able to do before. So also in the case of the martyrs. And by the way, the word martyr is the same word as witness. These were men who were enabled to face death, even terrible sufferings. What was it that enabled them to do it? It was the witness of the Holy Spirit. It was their overwhelming sense of the love of God. And the result of this was that they became powerful witnesses to Christ. The realities of heaven were brought home to the soul, not only in an immediate way, but an unmistakable way. It brings about certainty. It brings about conviction. You see, a man can't truly witness to Christ until these things are truly settled in his mind and until he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But having tasted and seen and known these things, we see what kind of witness they are capable of. But we also find that the witness of the spirit produces more ordinary results as well. I've been describing the extraordinary. What about the ordinary? Well, when the, when the witness of the Spirit comes to the believer, he finds a greater ease and freedom in the faculty of prayer, especially. That's what Paul is describing here. This sense of familiarity, this sense of ease. He doesn't need to read written prayers. He's able to pray well enough for himself. He's able to pray in such a way uh, that he's never been able to pray before. He delights in prayer. He delights to dwell in the presence of God in a surprising, delightful way. Or in the case of the preacher who has known it, suddenly he finds a greater uh, ease in preaching, a greater sense of authority, a greater boldness. Suddenly he finds men are prepared to listen to him in a way they never have before. Again, you find this in the case of men like Whitfield and others. We could say the same of the hearer. The hearer who's had the love of God brought home to the soul. Now the sermon comes to him with a newfound sense of gladness. 
And the faculty of faith which comes by hearing is more easily exercised. He delights in all he hears. He gladly and readily receives it. He contemplates it. He stores it up in his soul. The old difficulty, the dead weight that was upon his soul, dragging it down is removed. He's now acting as a child relating to his father who is in heaven. When does it come as a seventh point? Who can know? Who can say when the spirit might blow in this way as a mighty wind upon the soul or even upon churches? But I can say that when he comes, he comes suddenly. Divine light breaks in dispelling the darkness, as Owen says. The case is settled. It may accompany conversion. Don't hear me saying it never does. But it may not. It is likely to occur as one is reading the Bible or listening to sermons. Just as he's contemplating divine things. So he need not be reading the Bible. He may, or listening to a sermon, he may simply be contemplating these things. Especially his sonship, the, the, the love of God, the electing love of God. As these things are uh, active in his mind, as faith is exercised upon these things, and our spirit is witness, witnessing to them, the truth of them. Just then, the spirit is likely, though he is free and voluntary, as Owen said, he is likely at just such a time to add his own witness To testify in his own way the truth of the things considered. To make them sure to us in a way that only he can. To bring the reality reality of them home to the soul. Especially that we are children of God. I'm saying it's likely to happen in that way. Though we are always. We're always wanting to maintain the freedom and the sovereignty of the spirit. I would also say that it's not an abiding experience. It doesn't last. It comes and then it goes. But it will change you. Even if it only happens once, it will change you. You will not find the same difficulty in believing as you once did before. You will sense, as Owen expresses, that the case really is settled and that I really am loved of God. And so even if the spirit isn't always witnessing in this way, nevertheless, the effects of it are abiding. They're lasting. The confidence that it inspires goes on with the believer. And indeed, such an experience may come again and again. In the life of the believer. But even if just once. It will utterly and thoroughly change you. Well is there nothing for us to do? Either though. This is my eighth and final point. Either those of us who have known it. And would know it again. Or those of us who are Christians. And yet have not known it. And would know it. Well I. In answer to that question. As one one of the writer puts it. Is there nothing for us to do? We're emphasizing the sovereignty of the spirit. Nevertheless. He works through means. Take the prior point. Yes, the spirit is sovereign in this. He comes and goes as he pleases. But do you see when he's likely to come? He's likely to come when we're in the way of duty. When we are delighting already and enjoying spiritual thoughts and prayers. The spiritual mind loves to think the thoughts of God. The things of the spirit, Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Well, it's just as we're doing that, that the spirit comes to the soul and bears witness. Not apart from, but in and through these things. These are the means by which the witness comes. When the soul is taken up with the truths of Scripture. And so if you want to know the witness of the Spirit, then you ought to give him something to witness to. An opportunity to add his own witness to what you already are considering and are setting your faith upon. 
For, for if we are to find him in this way, we will only find him in the way of duty and obedience and prayer. If God would testify to us that we are indeed the sons of God, then we must be living as acting as sons, as I said last time. And there he will meet us and he will take us to a place we cannot mistake. He will take us to the mount of God's love. And there he will make it certain to us and he will melt our hearts. When will he do it? Who can say? But when is he likely to do it? When we are in the way of duty. But let me add to that point. That we must beware of false experience, uh, experiences. We must beware of counterfeits. Here is something that is difficult for the, the, the enemy to counterfeit. And yet which he tries and which he does. Leading us to the question, how may we be sure that we have known it? And we have not been deceived. Those of us who have said that I have known it. That the spirit has witnessed to me in this way. Well, I think the best way is to ask, to what does it lead? Does your experience tend to puff you up? Does it lead to spiritual pride or does it have a tendency to humble you? Does it lead to greater views of self? Or does it tend to abase you and to amaze you that one so unworthy as you could be loved of God? In other words, does it lead you to have high thoughts of God and of his love? Even as you think less of yourself than before. And beyond that, does it lead to a spirit of obedience? In other words, are you do you find that as a result of the experience that you rest content in the experience? Or do you find that as a result of this, that you are spurred on to greater obedience and to greater heights in Christian obedience as children? God has made you to feel as a son. Well, then act as a son. You see. Do you find as a result of it? A newfound desire and a greater desire to obey God such as you have never felt before. Those are the tests. But then as I close, it all comes to this. As I say, we ought to be walking as sons. We ought to be living as sons. We ought to be praying as sons. For it's just as we're led by the spirit, verse 14, and praying in the spirit that we might that we may look for this witness of the spirit. Verse 16. When that is what we are doing, when we are being led, praying in the spirit. Then we have reason enough to look for and expect this witness. I do not say it will be, it will come automatically or immediately, but I do say it will come eventually and certainly you need not worry about it. For the father is not stingy in giving such gifts to his children, certainly not the gift of his spirit and a sense by the spirit Of his love for his children. As Paul says. For as many as are led by the spirit of God. These are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. But you received the spirit of adoption. By whom we cry out Abba Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That we are children of God. Amen. And let us come now to the table. Let me read the words of institution and warning. 
as well as invitation from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then I want to read some words from the book. The Apostle Paul says this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. There are the words of institution. He goes on to exhort the believers in this way. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Well, this time I don't always read from the book, but sometimes I like to. So let me read to you uh, selections from uh, the two sections, in essence, which mirror this, the institution and the invitation. As to the institution, we read this. Our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper as an ordinance to be observed by his church until he comes again. It's not a re-sacrificing of Christ, but a a remembrance of the once for all sacrifice of himself and his death for our sins. Nor is it a mere memorial of Christ's sacrifice. It is a means of grace by which God feeds us with the crucified, resurrected, exalted Christ. He does so by his Holy Spirit and through faith. Thus he strengthens us in our warfare against sin and in our endeavors to serve him in holiness. The sacrament further signifies and seals the forgiveness of our sin and our nourishment and growth in Christ. The bread and wine represent the crucified body and shed blood of the Savior, which he gave for his people. In this sacrament, God confirms that he is faithful and true to fulfill the promises of his covenant. And he calls us to deeper gratitude for our salvation, to renewed consecration and to more faithful obedience. The supper is also a bond and pledge of the communion that believers have with him and with each other as members of his body. As the scripture says, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we all are partakers of that one bread. The supper anticipates the consummation of the ages when Christ returns to gather all his redeemed people at the glorious wedding feast of the Lamb. As we come to the Lord's table, we humbly resolve to deny ourselves, to crucify the sin that is within us, to resist the devil, and to follow Christ as becomes those who bear his name. Now, I I don't think you were keeping count, but there are five main points there, which I won't repeat here. But if, if I did, I think you would see that in many ways, the whole of Christian doctrine is summed up at the Lord's table. Isn't that amazing? Uh, and and, and it's, it's God's grace, God's glory, but it's also our faith and our obedience. All of that is occurring in this transaction. Let me say a word, as I like to do, about the warning. We are warned not to partake in an unworthy manner. Our book says this. I'll, I'll say this, and then, and then we can pray. This warning is not aimed to keep the humble and contrite from the table of the Lord, as if it were, those, uh, as if it were for those who were free from sin. 
In fact, it is for sinners that our Lord gives this supper as a means of grace. Through the elements of bread and wine, our Lord graciously gives himself and all his benefits to everyone who eats and drinks in a worthy manner, discerning the body of our Lord. It is one thing to eat and drink in a worthy manner. It is a very different thing, however, to imagine that we are worthy to eat and drink. We dare not come to the Lord's table as if we were worthy and righteous in ourselves. We come in a worthy manner if we recognize that we are unworthy sinners who need our Savior. If we consciously discern his body given for our sins, if we hunger and thirst after Christ, giving thanks for his grace, trusting in his merits, feeding on him by faith, renewing our covenant with him and his people. That's that's how you come in a worthy manner. And with those words, uh, let us pray together. Our father in heaven, how grateful we are for this summation of the gospel. The gospel is summed up in Jesus Christ himself and portrayed here before our very eyes. In this, uh, in this metaphor, in this symbol. Dear Jesus, we ask you that we might indeed by faith discern your body and blood. And beyond that, that as we, as we read in Romans chapter 8, that it, just as we testify to this, that we are the sons of God, so you would testify and put your seal on us by your Holy Spirit, strengthening and increasing our faith, even as we partake. Would you nourish us in the inner man, we humbly pray. In Jesus' name, amen.